You're listening to Kiama Community Radio. Hello, my name's Lee Cordner. Welcome to Kiama Community Radio. My guest today is Gary Mackay. Gary is probably the most prolific author on the human experience of Australians serving during the Vietnam War. He has also written books on the real-world challenges faced by Australians in frontline occupations, for example, firefighters and the Special Air Services Regiment. Gary served as a young platoon commander in the Vietnam War, where he was badly wounded in combat and awarded the Military Cross for his actions. He went on to a successful 30-year career in the Australian Army that included command of an infantry battalion. Gary lives here in beautiful Kiama and was recently elected president of the Kiama Jamboree RSRL sub-branch. So Gary, congratulations on your latest book with the intriguing title, After the Blood Cools, A Warrior's Dilemma. Why did you decide to write such a deeply personal and reflective memoir some 50 years since your Vietnam War experience. Well, thanks uh, for having me, Lee. Um, it, it came down to COVID. I was asked to do a book by a publisher in Sydney, a military book, and COVID just stopped any ability to go and do research or... Because I like to use um, first-person accounts, oral history in my, in my books... I couldn't go anywhere, and as you mentioned, the RSL, I had contact with the guys from Soldier On and Mates for Mates, and I was made aware of the appalling number of suicides that we've had from our Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, and um, I was appalled. I simply was appalled, and uh, I thought... Um, what I'll do is I will write about my experience in combat and I'll bring up the fact that 33 years after the event I had I had an incident in, uh, in Vietnam where I was a battlefield tour leader and I the black dog came in the room and I was diagnosed with PTSD and uh, I thought what I'll do is I'll I'll write a book and try and shine a light into the dark space where warriors are asked to go and uh, and not pull any punches. Um, it, as you said, it was, it was deeply personal. Uh, I had to peel back quite a few layers of onion to get in there. But I wanted to show the younger veterans that they're not alone. It's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. It can happen to a lot of people, and it may not necessarily happen immediately. Mm. When Peter Cosgrove, who wrote the forward to the book, launched the book uh, six weeks ago, he mentioned the fact that this book might also be good for the people who train first responders. Right. So our coppers, the ambos and the fireys. And I think he's right there. So how did going through the process of writing this memoir, you know, about your own personal insights some 50 years later, how was that process of itself for you? I must admit that uh, at home I've got an office underneath the main deck of the house and uh, it's regarded as the cave and it's where I get banished when I'm in the selfish 
business of writing. Right. And um, I must admit a few times that on this book, when I would finish my composition for the day, I would come up and my wife would look at me and say, you okay? i say, yeah, I'm all right. But I knew that what I'd put down on paper that day was having an effect. Yeah, and was it a cathartic thing for you or was it a confronting thing? I think I've been through that stage. When I, when I wrote my autobiography back in 1987, the first question I was asked by an ABC reporter was, uh, was this your catharsis? Well, I had to go and look that word up. <laughs> and, yeah. and I guess it was. It was my catharsis. Mm. And that first little book opened up a lot of doors and I guess I started talking about it a lot more, which took a lot of the pressure out. Yeah. And because I've done hundreds of interviews with veterans while writing all the other books that I've done, I've been able to glean their experiences as well. Yeah. I found it healing in a way. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's interesting. So what is the warrior's dilemma and does the blood really cool? <laughs> well, I think it does. Um, and I'll, I'll probably address that a little bit later, but the dilemma that I saw was we, we get young men and women and we put them into a conflict. We throw them in harm's way and they are in an abnormal environment where people are trying to kill each other. And that's just not normal behavior. Then when he or she comes back from that conflict where they might have seen the most awful things and experienced the most awful things, they come back and we expect them to blend back into society untouched. Mm. And that's the dilemma. You're, you go into an abnormal environment and then you're expected to be okay when you come back to a normal environment. So that was the dilemma. So how well do you think we look after Australian veterans generally? We're a lot better than we were immediately post-Vietnam. Mm. I mean, guys from my era, we were never debriefed. As a matter of fact, I don't think we were even warned about the shock that we're about to experience on the battlefield. Yeah. I mean, we'd been through the battle inoculation range, but that's nothing compared to the real thing. Uh, the noise, the fear, the terror, and then, you know, the shock and horror of on the actual battlefield and then later on the grief when you lose comrades. But I think we're getting better the way we look after the younger guys today. There's a lot of organisations now that have sprung up in the last decade to try and help yeah. those veterans assimilate. Yeah, well, that's good. So just go back to the, you know, the ugly realities of war, which you've just touched on and also as you've covered at some length in your book. How do you think your perspectives have changed with the passage of time about that? Well, the blood has definitely cooled. Yeah. It, it's one of the interesting things, Lee, when, well, a lot of the veterans that I interviewed from Vietnam, I asked the question, did you hate the enemy? And the mm. answer was no. Mm, mm. They were simply the enemy. They were a target. They were something that had to be eliminated or otherwise they were going to eliminate you. So I never had any hatred for the enemy. 
But what I found when I first went back to Vietnam in 1993, because I had won a research grant from the Australian War Memorial, um, so I studied Vietnamese language, then I went back to Vietnam to interview the former enemy. And then I found, lo and behold, they were just like me. They were young men doing their job, what they believed in. And when I go back on my battlefield tours and catch up with these guys and we go down to this seafood restaurant in Vung Tau and we sit around, drink copious amounts of beer and tell lies, yeah, it's like a comrade-in-arms situation. It's like a, a brotherhood even though we're on opposite sides. And we just toast the fact that we're vertical and not dead. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing was the more often I went back to Vietnam, and I've been doing it for 25 years, probably been back a hundred times. What I've found is that my perception of the way the Vietnamese were forced into their war and all of that has changed. And I've got a greater appreciation for the way the Vietnamese, who were really screwed over by the French in 1947, which led to the First Indochina War and, the, and their eventual defeat at Dien Bien Phu, which then led into the American War, as the Vietnamese call it. That's all changed, and I realised that we got sucked into a civil war. So I've got a lot of empathy for the Vietnamese. You can't rewrite history. You can't do that, unfortunately. But you can show a lot more compassion, I think. Yeah. So what lessons have you for others? I'm talking primarily about the ADF, but perhaps more broadly in society, police, fireys and so on, you know, who are having to deal with horrific things and things that are out of the norm for most of us. What sort of messages would you give to those young servicemen and women of today, for example? Mm. Well, there's a, a great cliche we have in the Army, which is train hard, fight easy. Yeah. And the more realistic you can make your training, the better off you're going to be because when you get on that battlefield, nothing can prepare you for the noise, the disorientation, and then just the clamour and crash of battle. And we need to talk about that more. Um, the regimental medical officer in our battalion, who was a national serviceman, he'd got all the medics in our battalion up in Townsville to work in the emergency department of Townsville General Hospital. Ah, I see. And he did this for three or four months before we deployed. Todd was in there with them, you know, day in and day out. So they were used to massive trauma from car accidents or industrial accidents and things like this. And that sort of prepared them in that mm. way, the realism of what they're going to face. We used to go to Padre's hours, and uh, usually the, the... So, sorry, Padre uh, is a military chaplain. A uh, chaplain, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Go, we go to the chaplain's... They used to have a pub. It was called the CO's hour or the Padre's hour, and you would, you'd listen to the, uh, the Soul Patrol, but it was usually about ethics, Yes, um, and that's important, isn't it? In, oh, absolutely. For young soldiers, sailors, airmen to have yeah, a good grasp know, of ethics. But I think if I was getting a battalion ready to go to war tomorrow, I would be putting a bit more emphasis on the stresses of battle, yeah. the things that they're going to run into, mm. you know, the terror, the fear, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so there's the physical side, being competent with your weapons and your drills and your tactics and all that stuff is one thing, but... The psychological, the mental preparation yeah. is a whole other yeah. thing, isn't it? 
There's only one radio station for local news and information, as well as what's on in and around Kayama. KCR. Community Radio. Now streaming at kcr.org.au. So, you were conscripted into the Army as a National Serviceman back in the early 70s? 1968. 68. How did you feel about it at the time? And looking back, how would you feel about the idea of conscription now? Well, how did I feel at the time? Cheesed off is a good way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, it was a birthday ballot. Yes. So, you know, I was born on the 15th of December and everyone else who was born on that day got sucked into the Department of Labor and National Service and then they had to go and do a medical. But, you know, surprisingly, less than... Um, Less than 50% of people who had their number come up actually got through the medical end or had other reasons for not going in, like university studies or a trade or in a protected industry, or they might be the only son looking after mum on a farm. Yes. That sort of thing. But I was cheesed off because um, <laughs> I was working at the AMP Society at Circular Quay and I was a trainee computer programmer. And I had just made the cut to be selected for a course in Chicago with IBM for 18 months. And I was looking forward to running rampant in Chicago and going to the United States. I was also rowing surf boats with a championship crew and I was playing rep rugby. So this was a serious disruption to your life. And I was in hot pursuit of Jennifer Ann Howard, who also <laughs> worked at the AMP. And all that went, <laughs> just went down the drain. Uh. I felt, you know, a bit cheesed off. And the other interesting thing, Lee, is I knew nothing about Vietnam. Mm. I didn't even know which side of the equator it was on. Mm. I knew nothing about why were we going to this war in the first place. And I very quickly got up to speed on that. Yeah, and so that begs the question about what messages would you have for Australian governments, Australian politicians, who are contemplating committing Australians to war or potentially to war, you know, what, what what may we have learned from that or should we have learned from those experiences? Well, you know, they should have had a better public awareness campaign. The only problem was mm. that was all based on a great shining lie. I mean, everyone was told the South Vietnamese asked us to come and help. Mm. That was rubbish. When I did a book with a bloke called Bruce Davies on the history of the Vietnam War, we found a cablegram from Australia to our embassy in Washington asking the Americans to ask the South Vietnamese to invite us to the war. And we did that so that we would have Big Brother in our backyard because the British had pulled out east of Suez. Mm. That was a strategic context, wasn't it? Yeah, We yeah. needed an insurance policy and, we, and that's when we bought our way in by going to Vietnam. And you also asked, what do I think of national service today? If we could afford it and not have selective national service and have it for everybody, boys and girls, I think it would be a great thing between the ages of 18 and 20, almost like the gap year principle. But I wouldn't make it necessarily just for the military. I would have a whole raft of other projects that we could probably do in our widespread community which need help especially in the Northern Territory and Northwestern Australia. 
Well, we've seen that whole thing writ large in recent times with the COVID and and the bushfires and the floods and all that sort of thing. Oh, you know, I was up in Brisbane just recently giving a talk to Seven Brigade, which is an amphibious brigade based in Anogra Barracks in Brisbane. The commander of that brigade told me that his brigade has done no core training, C-O-R-E, mm. for nine months. Yeah. Because they're second in the order of march to go off if there is a war to go and sort out or a problem. They've been committed to COVID tasks. Right. And they haven't done their training. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and he's concerned about that because they haven't been doing their core business. Mm. So during the Vietnam War... Some of our fellow Australians treated our servicemen and women badly. How was your experience? And do you think attitudes have changed? Well, the greatest example I can probably give was after I was wounded, I spent about a year in hospital. And on one of the trips back to uh, Yoronga, to the first military hospital where it then was, I had an arthrodesis on my left shoulder because I'd had a couple of bullets just destroy the shoulder joint. So I was being rebuilt and I'm in a plaster cast that went from my waist to my neck and included my left arm. And uh, the Australian Services Rugby Union team, and I knew quite a few of the blokes in that, were playing a President's 15 at Ballymore. So I went to Ballymore and uh, with my nursing sister in tow, because I was allowed out for the day and she was to keep an eye on me. And we had a few beers and then I went off to the toilet behind the grandstand as it then was, because this, yeah. this is 1972. And I'm standing in the men's toilet at the urinal and uh, a guy walked in, a young bloke, probably early 20s, in a Queensland University T-shirt, polo shirt, something like that. And he looked at me standing there in this plaster cast, which weighed oh, the best part of 10 kilos because it was plaster cast, but it was then covered in fiberglass Right. because I had to wear it for six months. Oh, and, and he said something like, um, gee, that must have been a hell of a tackle. And you didn't say in 1972, no, I was shot in Vietnam. You didn't say that. Mm. Anyway, I said, no, no. And he said, what happened? I said, no, oh, I don't know. Anyway, he at me and he at me and he at me. And in the end, after I finished, zipped up and I said, well, if you really want to know, I got shot when I was in Vietnam. And he said, serves your bloody well right. That was then followed by a strangled cry because a guy who was just up from me, a bloke by the name of Peter Lauder, who was also a National Service officer, who'd also won a military cross, uh, with eight RAR in Vietnam, he was up from me. I didn't know him from a bar or so. And he had his hand around the throat of this guy. He was going to feed him out through the louvers in the toilet. And I said, no, 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 come on, let's just go. And he ended up becoming a lifelong friend and godfather to one of my kids. Yeah. So do you think attitudes have changed? Yes. In the broader public? Yes. Um, I think people have now realised Soldiers don't, and sailors and airmen don't make the decision to go to war. Mm. Politicians do. So if you're going to give anyone a hard time, give the police a hard time. Don't give those who are given the job of executing or extending our foreign policy, don't pick on them. And I think attitudes have changed. I think after we had the Welcome Home Parade in 1987, I think that was, 
And then Long Tarn Day, the 18th of August, uh, every year from the Battle of Long Tarn in 1966, Long Tarn Day became Vietnam Veterans Day. And yeah. I think that created a lot of public awareness about Vietnam veterans and what was going on. And I, I remember making a training documentary once with a filmmaker who said, you know, I just want to apologise because I took part in an anti-war march. I said, no need to apologise, mate. It's what you believed in. I said, you know, we didn't make the decision to go. And we had a good chat about that. Yes. So, as we said at the intro, you've recently been elected president of the Kaima Jamboree RSL sub-branch. How would you like to see that moving forward? Well, it's interesting. We've, we've lost a few older veterans from the RSL in the last year, but it's pleasing to note that we are actually getting some new people in. Some of these are veterans who've moved down from the Southern Highlands or from Sydney and are now settling in the area. What I would love to see, we, we have a good relationship with the, the Military Motorcycle Brotherhood group uh, they use our hall out at Jamboree and we're getting a few of them to come along but they support us as well and they do a lot of work around the hall and we, we consider the hall to be a community facility but um, we've got contacts with the guys in Soldier On but we know there are a lot of veterans in the Kiama LGA, we know mm. but they're just not coming along and I think well, quite a few turn up for Anzac Day, oh, don't yeah. they? You know. Yeah. There's a great gaggle that march on Anzac Day, but getting them into the hall. Mm. Um, so first Friday of the month, we have a lunch together. And every third lunch, we have a meeting because we don't have enough business to really do mm. except once a quarter, and except for when we're building up to Anzac Day at the beginning of the year. Yeah. But that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see more younger veterans... And I've got some contacts with a lady up in uh, Coromel who has been very successful in attracting younger veterans in her area mm. into the Coromel RSL. Okay, well, all the best with that. Gary, um, congratulations on your new book. I think it's a great read. I certainly enjoyed it. The style's conversational and there is much humour, although there's also the deeply personal reflections, uh, chilling accounts of combat, and the aftermath. Is there another book in the wings, or is it time to park the quill? <laughs> um, well, I wrote a novel. <laughs> I went to the dark side and I wrote a novel based on a true event uh, when I was in the Army, when I did some work with the Australian Federal Police, and we helped bust up a, uh, a drug smuggling group that were bringing drugs in in North Queensland. And that was called Dancing in the Daintree. And my publishers wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole because it was fiction. So I self-published it and I've got all my money back, which is all I really <laughs> wanted to do. But I wanted to see if I could do it. Yeah. Because I set it up as a trilogy. And so I'm halfway through the second book, which is based in the Kimberley. So I went back to the West last year uh, to Broome and, and uh, Kununurra and all that area. And so the trilogy will continue um, based in Western Australia. Terrific. Oh, we'll all watch this space <laughs> and look for it when it comes out. Well, thanks, Gary. Oh, you're most welcome, Lee. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Kiama Community Radio. The views, information or opinions expressed during this segment are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Kiama Community Radio.